Today, we talk to a leader who has led his ambulance service to becoming one of the first in the industry to undergo the ESOP process, making its employees owners in the company. We explore why Stewart's Ambulance has gone down this path and why it's making them a better company. I'm Matt Mowry, Executive Editor of Business NH Magazine. And I'm Nathan Carroll, Chief Growth Officer of Granite Media Group and founder of Cardinal Consulting. And welcome to BizCast NH. Matt, good morning. You good got morning. here. <laughs> you got here in one piece. I did. No incidents. That's good. Um, speaking of maybe one piece or one and a half pieces sometimes, as it were, um, and sort of apropos of our guest, uh, ever um, been in an ambulance? I have For any not. reason? Uh, not for myself. I have oh, ridden <laughs> in one for somebody else. Um, before we get into that, h- how about you? Uh, once, I think. I, um, I was in a... We'll call it a minor car accident when I was um, when I was younger, and it was like the middle of the night, and all I knew was to call nine one one, and then I was like, I don't know, maybe something is wrong with me, maybe not, I don't know. Put me in the ambulance, take me to the hospital, I don't care, you know. And uh, that's what they did, thankfully, um, and nothing was wrong with me, but uh, but it was nice to have the assurance of those folks just coming along and taking me away to where I needed to go, and and then uh, releasing me, as it were. But um, thankfully. No, I mean, very, very little involvement with ambulances or, or fire or any of that ever, really. So, same here. I, I, think I, about. I don't know if that makes us lucky or unadventurous in life, but well, uh, we'll see, right? Just hold on and knock on wood and use a cane or whatever, right? You know, <laughs> my one time in an ambulance wasn't for me, it was for uh, my grandmother. We, we were on a family trip to go visit her, you know, from New Hampshire to Pennsylvania. And it's a long drive, and we finally pull in, and um, it's, you know, mid-afternoon, and my dad looks up in his rearview mirror, and he's like, what the heck? And we're like, what? And he's like, look in back of us. And we look back, and, and my grandmother's at the screen door smiling and waving us, which was not unusual. It was unusual. She was sitting on the floor doing it. We're like, oh. what the heck? And um, we came to find out very quickly that she had been trying to reach something in the high cupboard on the ricketyest uh, stool she could find and unfortunately had fallen. And instead of going for the phone and, uh, you know, not that we had cell phones in those days, but trying to get to the phone um, and calling for help, she was concerned that we would not know what had happened to her. When make, she wanted to make sure she, we, we, she was there when we arrived. Oh, my um, goodness. <laughs> so she, I don't know how she did this, dragged herself with a broken hip um, across the floor from, you know, her kitchen into the back porch and just sat there for I don't even know how long waiting for us. And so, of course, we immediately call the ambulance. And then being an older person set in her ways, you know, she didn't want to go to the local hospital. She wanted to go to the one that was in the next town over where her doctor had privileges. And, um, you know, the ambulance service folks were just so patient and wonderful and, and treating her well. But, you know, they, you know, had to do this long ride over some of the bumpiest back roads I've ever been on. And then, of course, oh, we're on a back 
road, dirt road, there's this one, only one car in front of us. There's no other vehicles on this road. And yet somehow they didn't get the hint with the sirens and the the flashing lights that maybe they needed to pull over. So they drove quite a bit speeding up thinking, I don't know, maybe that was helping um, <laughs> before they finally pulled over to let the ambulance pass, which drove me crazy. And, and I later asked the, the ambulance folks about it and, and they said, oh yeah, no, that happens unfortunately quite a bit. Um <laughs> So uh, that is my ambulance story. Wow. Okay. Did grandma, did grandma fare well after that? Grandma fared very well. She got great care. She recovered. Um, so, uh, you know, we were very thankful for the emergency personnel because yeah. I, I, we were probably worse for wear, you know, for <laughs> discovering her and, you know, going, why didn't she call an ambulance sooner? Yeah, really. Oh, my goodness. Well, um Wow. Wild, wild ride, um, which I'm sure, um, you know, from our guests work that maybe he has some of those stories, too, of the staff that he works with and the folks that, that are in dealing with stuff every day. They've probably got a lot of frustrations and cars that don't get out of the way should not be one of them. Exactly. <laughs> they probably are. So uh, let's roll right into our, our introducing our guest this week. And uh, our guest this week is Justin Van Etten, executive chairman of Meredith-based Stewart's Ambulance Service. Under Justin's leadership, Stewart's has grown to New Hampshire's largest EMS agency. In addition to his work with Stewart's, Justin serves as the chairman and majority shareholder of Municipal Resources Incorporated. He's the chairman of Transformative Healthcare NH and the chairman of the Squam Lake Science Center. Prior to returning home to New Hampshire to start a family, Justin was a principal in the investment banking firm of Keith, Briette, and Woods. Justin lives in Holderness, New Hampshire with his wife, two children, two dogs, and one cat. An avid hiker, Justin has completed most of New Hampshire, New Hampshire's 4,000-footers. I'm, th- I'm sure we'll dig into all of that uh, as we go to learn a little bit more about you, Justin, but welcome, first of all. Thank you, Matt, and welcome. Well, I don't know if I say welcome to you guys, but thank you for having me anyway, Nate. Well, you Thanks, can, Matt. I mean, you're obviously a consummate host if you're welcoming us to our own <laughs> show. So there you go. Absolutely. Um, maybe we get in the Wayback Machine, which Matt brings to every episode, uh, just for a little bit here, and um, talk about your initial involvement with Stewart's Ambulance. You started around 2007 uh, being involved there, and the company was in a very, very different place. Talk about uh, your uh, involvement, why you became involved, and, and where the company was then, and I'm sure we'll get right to or eventually to where it is now. There's a lot of good stuff going on, but take us back if you don't mind. Absolutely, Nathan, and thanks so much. Um, Yeah, earlier Matt and I were joking how here in New Hampshire there's one degree of separation on everything. Uh, Mm -hmm. And so I had been an investment banker out in San Francisco, and we moved back home to Meredith, and I'm at the local grocery store, and it turns out I ran into the CFO of one of the banks that we had acquired in the local grocery store. And uh, once we had retired him, I guess, from the banking industry, he became the owner of the largest campground in Meredith and the fire chief and the chairman of the board of selectmen. And he ran into (laughs) me, small, small town stuff. And he ran into me and he said, Justin, what the heck are you doing here? And we talked and he said, you're a finance guy and our ambulance service in town is having a lot of problems and why don't you help them out? And so I was supposed to help them for six months to a year and 17 years later, I'm still here. But yeah, they were in bad financial shape at the time. They were, you know, 10 days away from having to close their doors, which is why I got involved. And obviously we needed these folks and it's, it's been an interesting and really rewarding 17 years. Well, and, you know, I'm curious, 
you know, I'm sure you never during your career envisioned yourself heading up an ambulance service. Um, what, you know, once you became involved with it to help it out financially, obviously something clicked because as you said, 17 years later, you're, you're still there. What about this business has kept you engaged? Hmm. That's a great question, Matt. Um, it's interesting. It's, it's the people are unbelievable. The, the folks that work for us, the people that are out there providing care in our community are really just remarkable individuals because it's, it's not the best career right now. That's why we want to change it with employee ownership. But, and they give so much. It doesn't matter if you're here in Amherst or up in Littleton or in Meredith or Holderness. These folks are just amazing. And so working with them and helping them has been great. Um, other thing I'll tell you, I, I have a ride in an ambulance story. Uh, you know, one, my, my kids have gotten a ride. I think my wife got a ride. But I, I've had a heart condition most of my entire life, and it was maybe a year or two into it. They've never been able to diagnose it. I ended up riding in my own ambulance company. Uh, they got it diagnosed for me after 20 years of not getting it diagnosed, and they surgically corrected it. So in many ways, um, being involved in Stewart's has literally improved the quality of my life and probably the length of my life significantly. So who knows? That probably played a, a part, too. And wow. no pressure on, on, on that crew to get the call about, uh, it's the boss. <laughs> they, they, you know the 12-lead stickers they put on you when you're you know, having a heart issue? They, they put them in the wrong place. And these are wonderful paramedics who knew exactly what they were doing, but they were so stressed because it was the boss. Oh, wow. And then they were going to have to you know, shock me, and, and I was yelling at them, like, literally, if you shock me with that machine, I will fire you. Uh, <laughs> but they, they got it all fixed. I'm all good. <laughs> Goodness, I can't even imagine. Um, initially, Justin, you mentioned that the the Stewarts at that point was in bad financial shape. Um, what have you done in terms of the business model, um, and and what has has helped that to obviously to turn that situation around? Um, and is it uh, that the industry has changed, or that you've used your knowledge and expertise to sort of uh, you know uh, address the issues? What what's the um, what's been the the uh, pieces of the puzzle, as it were, there. Well, you know, the industry's changed a lot in 17 years. So what we did and worked back then, we've had to mm. change repeatedly. Um, at the time, they were wonderful people, but they weren't very financially sophisticated. They didn't know which parts of the business made money and which parts of the business lost money. So I helped with that for the first three or four years, and that that was easy for me. Um, now the challenges in the industry are much more complicated. You read any newspaper, magazine, WMUR, uh, every part of healthcare is struggling right now. So the challenges are much bigger right now. Um, but, you know, it's been, they're wonderful at what they do, and they make sure I'm not allowed to be a healthcare provider because they know I'd, I'd be terrible at that. You uh, obviously weren't even a great patient. <laughs> I was a terrible patient. And, uh, but, uh, but I'm good at the finance side. So that's where I help out. Nice. And, you know, for most people, obviously, they don't think about ambulances until they really need them. And then that's their lifeline. And they don't, I think most people don't even, it doesn't enter their mind that for some ambulance services, it's a business. It's not, a, you know, part of the hospital. Or I think a lot of people are assuming like, oh, hospitals have ambulances and not that there's a steward's ambulance service. So can you talk even just about the basics of how the ambulance business model works? Who hires them? Who pays for them? Um, and, and what are the staffing criteria like? 
Great question, Matt, um, especially in New Hampshire now because it's changing so dramatically. So roll back the clock 30 years. This business was largely volunteers that were in not-for-profits. They were occasionally in hospitals. They were in municipalities. But we relied on people volunteering their time. And that's what's created so many of the challenges for this industry is you can't ask people to volunteer 40 hours a week and not get paid to do such a critically important job. But nice. New Hampshire, Maine, Vermont, we're all still a hodgepodge of that uh, legacy system. Um, probably 30 years ago, maybe, some private companies got into this business. There aren't very many of us left. I want to say the majority have gone out of business in the last five years. Um, you know, there, there's only a small number of private services. There's a number of not-for-profits. A lot of it's being handled by municipalities themselves. Um, in those instances, it's the taxpayer that pays. You know, in theory, the insurance company reimburses Medicare, but so many of those places pay below what it costs to provide the care. The taxpayers end up having to subsidize it. Now hospitals are looking at having to subsidize it. It's, it's not an easy situation at the moment. And so... Who does hire you? Who are your clients and, how, you know, that you're responding to calls for them? Yeah, so our clients are about eight municipalities where we do the 911 work. So you dial 911, we show up. Um, we do, uh, I don't know if it's most of them, but a lot of the largest hospitals in the state, you know, Concord, Laconia, Wentworth, Douglas, Exeter, all these hospitals throughout Maine Medical Center, the hospitals hire us. Um, skilled nursing facilities will sometimes hire us, um, but it's mainly municipalities and hospitals. And so um, how many locations do you have? How many employees? Uh, we've got about 250 employees. I'd actually need to wow. stop and think about all of our locations because <laughs> we have to be where the patients are, which means we have a lot of them. And I know when I drive around all of them, it takes me about 13 hours to hit everyone in a single day because they're, you know, they're in Wolfboro and Moultonboro and Summersworth and Merrimack and... Uh, Tilton and they're, you know. If I'm not mistaken, I think I passed one of your um, locations. I live in Rochester. We're going furniture shopping in Conway. I went, oh, we're interviewing them. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you did. So we're, we're, we're all over the place in New Hampshire and Maine. Wild, wild. Um, we, uh, we sort of have to ask this after the last few years, um, knowing that as you, you know, said, this is, it's not necessarily, uh, you know, the, the best industry or, or the most attractive uh, job, as it were. But what has the, or had the, the pandemic done to, uh, to the organization from an operation standpoint, from, but also from an EMS standpoint, um, in terms of the, uh, the individuals that are providing the care? What is, what has the change been like through the pandemic? Great question, Nathan. So at first, the pandemic crushed our business because mm. nobody wanted to go to the hospital. So we literally saw the number of transports we were doing cut in half, and that generates a lot of our revenue. Um, we got creative really quickly. So that's the transformative healthcare of New Hampshire part. Uh, we became one of the largest COVID testers and COVID vaccinators in New England. Um, because, you know, the interesting thing is, right, everybody's worried about catching COVID at the beginning. And even if you're in the hospital, they're in bubble suits and all of this type of stuff. Mm -hmm. EMTs, this is why they're so amazing. You dial 911 at the beginning of the pandemic, our EMTs were still going in your house to take care of you, mm. even if you had COVID. We provided them all the best protective gear we could, but 
That's scary stuff, and they weren't hesitating to do their job. They, it was it was unbelievable the sacrifice these people made, and so pandemic starts, our business is down, we were, you know, losing tons of money. And we started, you know, we would go in and COVID test in nursing homes and skilled nursing facilities throughout New England, we would go to, you know, uh, encampments for the the, the unhoused and uh, the highest Uh prisons, highest risk environments, and and our staff, they were comfortable with it. This is the world they live in. Um, That generated a lot of, of money to cover everything else. And one of the coolest things, our owners... Um, actually said, listen, you know, we appreciate that this is keeping the business alive, but we don't want to make money off the pandemic. That That's terrible. And so they've allowed us to use a lot of the money that we made during COVID testing and vaccinating to give bonuses to all of our staff, which they desperately deserved and needed. Um, yeah, nice. So that's that, that shift into testing and vaccinating kind of kept us there. Um, today, big part of the reason we're, we're looking at this employee ownership is because hospitals need 50% more transportation than they did before the pandemic. And because they need more transports, and we routinely transport patients now to like Connecticut and upstate New York. That's the closest place you can find a hospital bed. Our personal record is Texas. That's the closest hospital bed we could get was Texas. Um, So there's a lot more demand for it. A lot of EMTs got burnt out and left the profession. And so there's more demand and there's fewer people doing it. And it's a really, really hard job right now. And what are some of the, I mean, even before the pandemic, obviously there were some inherent challenges in being a private ambulance provider that were just exacerbated by what the pandemic, the pressures the pandemic brought, what are some of the biggest challenges facing the industry and how are, what are some of the methods that Stuart's been using to be one of the few to make it through the pandemic? That, that's a great question, Matt. Here's the challenge. We take care of everyone. Doesn't matter. I'm not going to worry how I get paid. When you need us, we are there for you and we're going to take care of you. And, you know, there's always talk about these ridiculous ambulance bills, right? But the reality of it is I can transport a patient. Sometimes I never get paid because I never see the patient again. Sometimes I get paid maybe $100 for the call. Sometimes I get paid three or $400 for a call. Um, and sometimes I get paid a couple of thousand dollars for a call. And when I get paid a couple of thousand, they're paying for all the trips that the other people did that didn't pay. And so right. that's a huge challenge. And um We've been a leader. We don't like to surprise bill people. So you don't know in an emergency who's showing up and we show up and and it turns out, you know, your insurance goes, yeah, Sarah, you're not covered for that 911 call. <laughs> we, we don't want to send you some huge bill that's going to bankrupt you. And so we, before balance billing, you've heard about this, maybe in front of the uh-huh. U.S. legislature in New Hampshire, we didn't want to balance bill people. What that means is some insurance pay companies will pay us 300 bucks, and some insurance companies will pay us $4,000, and we just have to take it. And that's probably the biggest challenge, except maybe staffing today. You mentioned trans- transformative healthcare, of which you're the chairman. Um, was that organization created uh, prior to or within uh, the pandemic? Um, and and what are you doing with that organization? I understand, as I understand anyway, you're harnessing data and technology. So I'd love to delve into that a little bit um, in, in its sort of history as well. So that was the holding company when they started acquiring the EMS services. And the idea was to go beyond EMS services. And then, of course, the pandemic hit. Uh, So the entity 
was around before the pandemic, um, mm. but then we ventured into, we hadn't been doing the testing and vaccination business. We use that entity to get into that business. Uh, um, okay. We do other data analytics stuff in there as well. I think now uh, is perhaps a great time to delve into the ESOP, right? Um, you've talked about the industry, you've talked about how hard your, uh, your team works, um, and now I would love to talk about giving all of those individuals a, a piece of the pie, as it were, a stock in the company as employee owners. So um, can you refresh the memory or, or uh, inform our listeners a little bit about what an ESOP is, and then maybe jump into the why and the how of this for Stewart's? Absolutely. Um, ESOP is a federally recognized entity. They give you a bunch of tax credits for doing it. There's a nationwide uh, trade organization that supports it. Um, sometimes, you know, Google is technically an ESOP. It's just that the employees own a small sliver of it. We're talking about them owning most, if not all, of the company here at Stewart's. Um, so that's what it is. It's a convenient vehicle that you can use. There's a, a home goods store, believe it or not, up in the Lakes region that's doing the same thing. King Arthur Flower, oh, wow. Hypertherm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Lots of these companies have done this. Um, so it's a great vehicle. So that's the what. Um, the why, I'll tell you. So you mentioned I used to be an investment banker. The investment banker that I owned, it wasn't an ESOP, but it was 100% employee-owned. And what I realized in hindsight, it was one of the best places to work. I, I feel so blessed and fortunate to have worked in that. It, you don't think of investment banks as being supportive places, but it was incredible. Yeah, not necessarily. Yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> uh, from the, from the mailroom to the receptionist to the partners, we were all employee owners. A uh, great place to work. But then I'll also tell you, we were headquartered at the top of the World Trade Center, uh, and we lost a third of our firm that day. And we rebuilt the firm because we were employee owners. And it was more successful than it was. And, and that allowed us, by the way, to pay for the health care and the college costs of all the colleagues that we had lost because, again, we're a team as employee owners. So I lived through that experience. I knew how powerful it was. And so the more I looked at the ambulance service, which has a whole bunch of challenges right now, mm. this is the way that we overcome those challenges and hopefully and make this work for everyone here. I imagine one of the challenges that you're trying to address is, I mean, every industry is fighting for talent right now. There's just a massive shortage of employees everywhere, no matter what business you work in. Um, So with so many EMS workers getting out of that industry due to burnout from the pandemic, um, what effect is and I know it's fairly recent, the ESOP, but is there an effect you're already seeing from going to an ESOP? Is it helping you to attract talent? It is. Right now, it's limited. It's players who have been around for 10 or 20 years and they know the industry. There is one other big ESOP down in Louisiana, Acadian. They've been hugely successful. People like that see the power of it. We've been attracting them. What I need to attract is the 20-somethings that are just getting in. Um, We haven't been successful with that yet, but I Mm -hmm. think as this progresses, as more of our employees see the financial benefit, that should help immensely. Do you imagine uh, or are you seeing that this is also stemming perhaps folks leaving you? Is Is this a valuable retention tool? Absolutely. That's a big part of the reason that we're doing it. And once it's rolled up, you know, it's going to take three, four, five years to fully vest. Um, We don't want people, you know, walking away. So hopefully that financial interest. I mean, the other thing is, again, to your staffing comment, Matt, there's more demand for our services than ever. 
There's fewer people in this industry nationwide doing it. The only way we solve the problem in healthcare is by getting them to do it more efficiently, better, faster. And by employees being owners, they then get the benefit of it. So rather than some shareholder somewhere seeing the benefit of them working harder, we sit down with them. We go, listen, we, we know it's going to be harder to be more efficient, but you're going to be the beneficiary. All that money that we make goes directly into your pocket, your family's pocket. So we're hoping that argument helps them help us solve the industry problem here in New Hampshire and Maine. Right. That's a pretty good pitch. <laughs> and, and, you know, I think you've made a great case for, you know, why this is helpful for the business and obviously what the attraction for employees is. Um, but, you know, a lot of our listeners are business owners and executives as well. So what is, and especially we're going to be seeing a big wave and change of ownership and leadership in companies as we move forward is, um, you know, more and more of uh, people at, at those positions are nearing retirement. What is the advantage for ownership from going from, you know, the sole ownership or, or shared ownership to this employee stock ownership model? Great question. Um, so again, I was a mergers and acquisition guy before I did this. And if the only thing you want is the highest possible price value. Um, and that's fine. Lots of people do. This probably isn't the greatest path. But I know for a lot of in entrepreneurs, they've invested a huge amount of themselves and their soul into their business. Mm -hmm. And they, they love their employees and they don't want to see these things happen. And as an M&A guy, I know a lot of times you sell your company, three years later, the thing's crushed. Um, it's been absorbed or whatever, consolidated. And employee ownership is a really a way to protect the legacy of what's been built there. And, mm -hmm. and you know, maybe you take a 10 or 15% haircut on valuation. Not always, because there's a lot of tax benefits that I don't fully understand for the selling shareholder. Um, but it's a way of going, you know, this company that I spent my lifetime building is going to look like that company 20 years from now. And the beneficiaries are going to be all these people who helped me build it. That's a really persuasive narrative story for, for owners, I think. And I want to come shift gears a little bit and go back to you. Because, I mean, it's such an interesting path that you have been on. How did you get into finances and M&A work? I mean... You know, so many of us are in, in professions that, you know, you ask a kid what they want to be when they grow up, it's not on the list. But, you know, you find your passions as you, you get into things. So what attracted you to that field and what kept you in it for so long? <laughs> um, I, I, I was weird as a child. I loved finance from the time I was like, I don't know, sixth grade. You're it in was good company. You're in very good company. My <laughs> first toy was a calculator. <laughs> exactly. Uh, I had a grandfather who was in finance and, and all my father and his two uncles, they were not finance people. So he just, he loved the fact that I loved it and, and he persuaded me. So I, I knew I was headed to finance forever. Um, again, I, I got to go and be part of this amazing employee-owned investment bank. I loved my experience doing that. Um, it was it was hard for me emotionally once we rebuilt the company after September 11th, and it just it was that we were taking the company public, and I was getting married, and and we realized, listen, 
anybody who lives in New Hampshire, you guys both raise kids. There's no better place on earth to raise children than New Hampshire. Um, there aren't a lot of investment banking jobs here, but it, it, it just <laughs> yeah. it made sense. And so that's what brought me up here. But I, I loved working in finance, and it's pretty much what I do now for all these companies is finance. So when you moved back to New Hampshire, did you have something lined up or was it, let's move to New Hampshire and then I'll figure out the next career step? It was, let's move to New Hampshire and figure out the next career step. And then literally, I wasn't planning on doing anything, but I ran into Chuck Palm, that fire chief that I knew from corporate finance. And, you know, again, 17 years later, I'm an ambulance guy. You never know what a supermarket uh, shop is going to result in. (laughs) Certainly not in New Hampshire. I love it. Well, I've got some very, very important questions before we wrap. One, I want to know the dog's and the cat's name. (laughs) Uh, Frisco and Mira, two golden retrievers. They're outstanding. They're awesome. Yep. And and the cat is named uh, Hobbs after Calvin and Hobbs, for those of of you who are old. And uh, he adopted us. He just showed up on a house site and refused to leave. And we gave him to a couple of friends who gave him back to us. And he's, (laughs) I'm not a cat person, but he thinks he's a dog. He's awesome. I love it. I love it. I had a, a similar experience with a cat that we call him. We, we, never, we didn't get him. He came to us. So there you go. <laughs> um, and we mentioned in your bio that you were a hike, uh, avid hiker, completed most of those 4,000 footers. Um, what's your favorite peak so far? Oh, that's, a, that's actually a good question. Um, it's the toughest question of the whole interview, right? Come on. <laughs> I know. I know. And, you know, I'm, I'm not going to be able – it was the best part of the pandemic for me because I couldn't meet people in person. So my, my folks that I work with got used to hearing my hiking poles, click and clack. I would take my conference calls while I was hiking mountains. Uh, I, I, I don't it. think I have a favorite. I just loved being out there. And, and awesome. what is it about that you like uh, about this? I mean, when people get into – to, to hiking the, the, these size um, mountains, I mean, they're passionate about it. You have to be to, to, to do it. And then you have folks like myself who go, good luck to you. Good. <laughs> Better you than me. So what is it about it that, that has, has just gotten you so uh, excited about it? You know, Matt, it's actually a great question because I've always liked hiking, but I, I would have gone, yeah, no, I didn't do any 4,000 footers for my first decade here. It was really the pandemic. Um, the problems of the pandemic were so overwhelming and really they, they felt challenging. And being out in the woods for 10 consecutive hours, just walking, thinking about anything other than the problem that I was thinking about was the best way for me to solve those problems. So that's, that's I didn't care about the peaks. I didn't care about the summits. I just liked the process and what it allowed me to do for problem solving. So it was helpful. There you go. There you go. A little, a little free mental health care. <laughs> Nice. Well, Justin Van Etten is executive chairman of Stewart's Ambulance Service. Justin, it has been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for your work, uh, for your expertise, and uh, for sticking around here in New Hampshire. It's been great to have you. Thanks, fellas. Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed this today. Thank you for joining us today. If you enjoyed the stories and information you heard on today's podcast, find more by subscribing to Business NH Magazine or visiting businessnhmagazine.com. I'm Matt Mowry. And I'm Nathan Carroll. BizCast NH is a production of Granite Media Group.